You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up today at 6 on 1A+, what happens when we appeal a claim that our insurance company has rejected? Today, 1A looks at new reporting on a process that's tricky and far from transparent. That's coming up today at 6. Now, think about the saying, find out what you're made of. Usually that's about character, values, toughness, more than, you know, the nuts and bolts of the human body. But what was the last time you actually got curious about what we are actually made of? Not just the hair and skin and organs and stuff, but the small stuff, the atoms. How about how the food we eat becomes us? In his new book, our next guest tackles these and other ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are these things you are curious about or were you as a kid? Do you have a question about what we're made of, what we're not made of, how we got to be what we are. Our next guest goes back to the Big Bang to start things off. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Dan Levitt writes and produces science and history documentaries. His new book is called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. Dan, welcome to Central Time. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. I got to ask about the journey here, because if I thought of some of the starting questions you did, I might, you know, go online for a couple few minutes and then be done with it. Instead, you literally go from Big Bang to how we, you know, how our cells turn food into energy, plus the science behind it. What kicked off this journey? You know, it started with a question. When my teenage daughter was thinking of becoming a vegetarian, I naturally wanted to was wondering what she would have to eat in order to remain healthy. And when I started thinking about it, I actually realized I have no idea what our bodies were made of. And a little <laughs> bit more thinking, and I realized I actually don't even know where that stuff, whatever it was, came from. And then it kind of hit me, which was, wow, everything that's in our bodies now, every single particle actually started 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. And so that kicked off uh, a whole lot of, of of Googling and questioning. And, you know, what I discovered is not just that it's an amazing journey from there to here, but also the fact that we are made of particles from the Big Bang and we can actually reconstruct that journey and look back and figure out how we got here. That's also just amazing. So how scientists discovered it also was something that just just absolutely fascinated me. I'm going to I'm going to go to some of the things that fascinated me that I learned in your book. So you mentioned some of our material or all of it originated 13.8 billion years ago. The bits of us that are hydrogen, which is a fair amount of us, that's the original material. Those are the same atoms as when the universe started. That's it. And that's 10% of your body. Uh, but all the other atoms, which are different elements like oxygen and carbon and so on, they, they their constituents, the electrons and the protons that they're made of, also came right out of the Big Bang. But they needed a little work, right? So those bigger atoms, the carbons and things like that, how did they end up existing in the universe, first of all, much less being part of us? Yeah, so... Once the Big Bang happened, there was a huge amount of oxygen that went out in massive clouds into the expanding universe. A large uh, collections of those condensed into stars. And once that hydrogen was 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 at higher and higher press pressures, which gravity contracted into in, into this higher and higher pressures and temperatures, it fused helium, 
and that liberated energy. And that and when it liberated energy and the star got hotter, then it was able to make heavier elements with more protons in the nucleus. Every element in our uh, every element has an additional proton compared to the one before it on the periodic table. So uh, as stars created uh, heavier elements and it released more energy, that allowed the stars to make even heavier elements. Uh, until the iron, un until the element iron, which has 40 protons in its uh, nucleus. After that, the rest of the elements in the universe and in our body uh, were made by the most powerful explosions in the universe, which are, uh, or some of them, which were supernovas, the <laughs> massive explosions of stars. Okay, and that's all amazing. But then here's the really baffling thing to me. Most of me is nothing. There's gaps uh, among the atoms, the molecules between them. There's more nothing than something in a human body. Yeah, that's for, I. I really have a hard time Whoa. getting my head around it as well. <laughs> but uh, if you look at an atom, like just a hydrogen atom, ninety nine percent of it is ex is empty space. So if you took the nucleus and you blew it up so that it was the size of a tennis ball, the electrons are worrying worrying. I'm sorry, we're worrying uh, a mile away. Uh, so uh, there's a huge amount of empty space with, within our body, so much so that the, some of the tiniest uh, uh, particles that we know of like, called neutrinos, they can just shoot right through us. We are talking about what we're made of with author Dan Levitt. His new book is What's Gotten Into You, The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. You can join in with your questions, your experiences in studying these things, maybe at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Jeff is with us in Superior. Hey, Jeff. Hi. This is a good topic. It's something I've internalized. I've read recently that men, male Americans at least, uh, part of a research study, are deficient in magnesium. And I, I read that the magnesium um, chemical or nutrient uh, affects how our body, um, want to say, um, how the synergy of the energy affects, that magnesium affects the relationship between the atoms in our body and the deficiency um, is, is a negative thing and we need to in, eat more magnesium. Is that is that enough of a question i mean jeff, I, well jeff i got you if you don't mind jeff i'm going to take us on a detour into the 19th century dan where scientists were really tackling questions of what do we need to eat <laughs> what happens if we eat these things what happens if we don't eat these other things can you talk about the quest to to narrow that down yeah well that's a, that's fun because uh you know in the 19th century we didn't know that we do need some minerals like magnesium. And you might wonder how they ever figured it out. <laughs> and the, the way they figured it out, one way they figured it out was they knew that our food has proteins, fats, carbohydrates in them. And uh, so they made artificial food with, with those constituents and fed them to animals like, like laboratory rats. And they discovered that they got sick. And so by a process of deduction, they were able to figure out that, oops, you know, we actually need, we need chlorine, we need magnesium, we need potassium, we need sulfur. There, there are certain mineral and iron we need, we need to, uh, that we have to get from plants in addition to the other things that we already knew about. 
Jeff, thanks for the call. Another component we need, and I want to go to this one because a lot of these were discovered at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, vitamins. And I want to get it. You you share the story of scurvy, which I thought I knew, right? Sailors got scurvy. They didn't eat uh, oranges. They didn't get enough vitamin C in their diet. Easy peasy. Except people figured this out and then forgot about it again and again. Can you talk about why it was so hard to connect the dots between this horrific condition that killed thousands of sailors and just eating some oranges. Yeah, it's baffling when you look at at the face of it. Um, Scurvy is a terrible disease, and the British Navy suffered dreadfully from it. Uh, And there was a while, there was a while when, when ship's captains knew that if they had fresh vegetables, and particularly if they had lemons or oranges, uh, and fed them to their sailors, they wouldn't suffer from it. But I think people got very uh, complacent about it. And the, the thing that was the real killer was at the time, no one had the concept of a vitamin. A vitamin is a weird thing. You know that if you eat something, you'll get sick from it. But who would think that if you don't eat a tiny bit of something that you've never heard of, that'll also make you sick? And it, at the time, there theories of disease were about the the were really the greek theories of the humors that that all the diseases they thought were were created by um by these four humors in the body that were in imbalance and so they didn't have the concept of a vitamin uh and so it took a long long time for them for for um for scientists to even get that idea in their heads and um in the meantime the millions and millions of of British sailors, uh, among many, many other people, uh, died from it. Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Michael is with us in Appleton. Michael, hi. Hi. uh, Thanks for taking my call. Um, So this is a bit of a tangent, and I apologize in advance. Uh, But I I read a lot of Terry Pratchett's novels, and in a couple of the Discworld books, um, he includes a little a little song that knowing Terry, I'm not sure how much of it is, you know, taken from actual old songs and how much uh, of it is him, but uh, it's iron enough to make a nail, lime enough to paint a wall, water enough to drown a dog. And it goes on like that for a little bit. Uh, and it's just talking about all the things that it takes to uh, make a man. Uh, and I just thought it's kind of interesting that, you know, you go back uh, all these hundreds, if not thousands of years and people have, he tried to figure out, like, okay, but what makes us alive? <laughs> uh, I, I gotcha, Michael. Thanks a lot. You you kind of break down how much of product uh, element X it takes to to make a human, as that song tried to do, Dan. Yeah, I love that. So if you weigh 150 pounds, you have a, a, a carbon enough to make 25 pounds of charcoal. You've got enough salt in your body to fill a salt shaker. You have enough chlorine to disinfect a couple backyard swimming pools and enough iron. Your caller was exactly right to make a three inch nail. (laughs) And furthermore, he was right because your body is over 50 percent water. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, We're talking to science and history documentarian Dan Levitt about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner. You can join in at 800-642-1234. You have a question for our guest about anything we've been talking about, about his journey to learn the history of 
the stuff we're made of, the atoms and molecules and nutrients and how they get there, you could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation with Dan Levitt about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. You can join in with your questions at 800-642-1234. Dan, before we go back and back to our callers, a big part of your book is about the scientists who made the discoveries you're looking at and the workings of science. And an amazing theme seems to be scientists proposes idea Everybody dismisses it as ridiculous, but then some of them say, okay, I'm going to try to disprove it. And they can't disprove it, and it becomes accepted science. What did you learn just about the way scientific progress works? You know, I always thought that uh, that scientists just follow the evidence. But when I was researching all of these amazing discoveries, I discovered that at the time that they were first presented, so many of them, the vast preponderance of them that I looked at in my book were just completely dismissed when they were initially presented or the scientists treated them with complete scorn. And um, you know, so I discovered that um, there were six particular reasons uh, that made whole communities of scientists very skeptical of radical new discoveries, not incremental ones, but radical ones. Uh, you know, one of them, I call, I, I gave them nicknames, right? One of them is the too weird to be true bias. <laughs> when scientists were first proposed that the universe was not static, but was expanding. I mean, huh? No way, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Uh, or, um, you know, when, uh, when scientists first proposed that organic molecules, which are the molecules that our bodies are made of, which are not rock, but they are they are longer chains of molecules, molecules could exist in space, people were completely skeptical. Um, so, uh, and, th and then often people um, had faith in the world's greatest experts and didn't always examine really carefully the assumptions that those experts made. And so, you know, I learned that uh, these kinds of cognitive biases uh, in the short term, not in the long term, but in the short term, can really, really retard science because scientists, they're just not very different from any of us. Uh, we all have unconscious assumptions that often we don't bring to the fore. And when we do, sometimes we're just wrong. Let's go back to our callers now. Chet is with us in McQuanago. Chet, hi. Hello, it's Chet. Yeah, nice to hear from you. I um. I'm totally relating to what you're saying about the everything you eat makes you. I, I teach a botany class to a bunch of fifth graders, and, and I'll start the day saying, first I'll say, uh, my, the th I'll show my thumbnail. So you see this thumbnail? That's a pork chop I had about a week ago. <laughs> you know. And But the, the funnest thing I like to do, and I think this relates to what you're saying, um, is I, I'd like to start the class off also with a question. I would say, I would ask them, uh, or tell them, I said, well, everything you eat comes from the soil. And they would often argue with me, um, you know, no, what if you were raised in a cannibal family or what about fish and all this other stuff they would ask me. But the, thing, the thought that everything you eat comes from the soil, was it seemed kind of radical too, but it always ends up there. And then the, and, and it ends, always seems to end with us saying, well, who makes the soil for us, you know? And it's the trees, and that's how I get into the botany end of it. But uh, the, the trees and the plants make soil for us 
so we can grow food so that we can make fingernails. Does that Chet, make sense? Yeah, Chet, thanks a lot for the call. And Dan, you spend some time on, on photosynthesis and the, the mystery of how plants convert energy from the, or was a mystery of how plants convert energy from a sun to the sun. And that uh, does all the things that Chet just said. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we really are creatures of plants and it all goes back to photosynthesis. You know, when I was in school, I probably learned about photosynthesis, but I paid it no mind. Now I think it's the most amazing reaction ever in the world uh it was invented by bacteria several billion years ago now it, of course it's in plants and uh and here's what it is you take carbon dioxide from the air you take hydrogen from water and you take energy from the sun and you make sugar out of it and then then from that sugar you can make other organic compounds so this is one of the mind, one of the many mind blowing things that I, I learned in the book is that ninety three percent of your mass actually comes from photosynthesis. Eighty three percent of your mass was once just carbon dioxide floating in the air, and another ten percent was hydrogen that was in the water. So you know we really are um, uh, completely products in a, in a sense of both plants and photosynthesis. Thanks for that call, Chet. We're talking to Dan Levitt about his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. Staying with the mind-blowing theme, Dan, part of that process uh, that took a while to figure out also was how cells convert stuff to energy uh, and just the, the sheer rate of what's going on, the chemical reactions in a cell. Uh, can you give us a sense of, of the scale, how quickly our cells are are creating energy for us? So there's a little, there's an energy currency in our cells called ATP. And your average cell consumes and therefore has to remake 10 to 100 million of them every single second. And the way it does that is unbelievable. This was another incredible thing that I learned, which is they're actually, it's done in a little chemical factory in your cell called a mitochondria. The mitochondria has little electric currents inside made not of electrons, but of protons. Again, protons from the Big Bang. And those protons drive these nanomachines, these unbelievable nanomachines called ATP synthase. They're they, and why I call them machines is that they've got a rotor that spins at, at up to 300 <laughs> uh, revolutions per second. And then there's another piece that, that creates the ATP and it's connected interlinked to another piece that kicks the ATP off into the cell. It's, an, it's a very beautiful, sophisticated machine. And it kind of looks almost water wheelish, like something that Leonardo da Vinci would create. And that creates all of the energy in your body fun thing about that is if you were to take all the mitochondria in your body that create your energy and lay them out flat, they would cover two basketball courts. There are that many of them. Wow. And they create as much energy in your body as uh, as a 100-watt light bulb. In the book, you tackle a lot of answered questions, things that uh, we figured out. Well, we people smarter than me figured out over the decades. What to you are a couple of the biggest still unanswered questions about what makes us what and who we are? Well, the origin of life is a topic, uh, is a subject that we have a lot of very good theories about, but that one, there's still a lot 
of unanswered questions. How exactly did the first cell form? And then the big one that I don't tackle in my book is consciousness. You know, I do talk a lot about how the molecules in our cells, 100 trillion molecules in each of our 30 trillion cells creates life. And we know a tremendous amount about that. But then how all the nerve cells in our brain create consciousness, that's still one of the biggest mysteries in science. Having gone through this process and written this book, do you look at your food differently now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there, you know, there, there's a, a, a wonderful quote that one scientist said is when, when I see people walking down the street, essentially I'm paraphrasing, I see plants rearranged. <laughs> Do you uh, do you feel different as a human being? This uh, as a holder of these thirteen billion year old atoms. You know, I do because um, you know I learned that even the simplest cell is unbelievably complex and worthy of respect, and we are made of thirty trillion cells. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that each one has 100 trillion atoms. If you were to, if they were each the width, uh, the thickness of a dollar bill, and you were to stack them up, they would go up to the moon and back like o almost 30 times. <laughs> and um, so it's almost impossible for us to appreciate how truly sophisticated we are. Our cells are filled with all kinds of unbelievable sophisticated mechanisms that were built by, again, from particles that came down to Earth willy nilly, ultimately from the Big Bang. And we'll leave it there. Thanks to our guest, Dan Levitt. He's a documentarian who produces films about science and history. We talked to him about his new book. It's called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. Tomorrow, What You Eat, uh, Food Friday. We'll talk about some of the healthiest foods on the planet. That's tomorrow here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, we'll look at an AP class on African-American studies and why it's being blocked in at least one state. First, think about the place you work at, or maybe a place you used to work at. Does your supervisor or someone at work seem to care about you as a person? Do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? Does the mission or purpose of your company make you feel that your job is important? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Those are some questions from a recent Gallup survey on engagement in the workplace it found less than a third of American workers feel engaged with their job. That number has slipped since the start of the pandemic after it had gone up in previous years. We're taking a look at this idea of being engaged with our work, whether it matters to our own well-being and the job we do. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you feel engaged, connected to your job? What does that mean to you? Does it matter or is it just a job? The important stuff in life happens elsewhere. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Christine Whelan is a clinical professor in the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison and director of MORE, Money, Relationships, and Equality. She's the author of books including The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life and Finding Your Purpose and Audible Original Great Courses program. Christine, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, defining engagement at work seems like a slippery topic. Gallup had like a dozen questions to try to get at it. What does that concept mean to you? 
Oh my goodness, we're hearing so much about it these days, whether it's quiet quitting or whether it's the idea that hybrid work is undermining our commitment to doing our best work at the office. I think what we're really seeing is a shift in terms of the way people think about work and how it interacts with their life. For so many decades, we had very much associated work as really the central piece of our life and that the only way to have a purposeful, meaningful life was to do some paid work that, that you enjoyed. I think the pandemic shook things up and, uh, and really got a big conversation going. So now what does engagement look like? Oh, man, it's going to look very different yeah. for different people. That's what I thought, because it could be uh, somebody could say, I'm engaged in my work because I believe in the mission or the product we do or whatever. Or it could be, yeah, I don't care about the work itself, but I like the people around me at the workplace. It can mean different things in different situations to different people, right? Yeah. And, you know, there was a McKinsey study last year that found that there is a real sort of purpose gap between managers and frontline employees. And so what they found was that about 85% of executives and upper management said that they can live their purpose in their day-to-day work. So that's a huge number who are really feeling purposeful and engaged at work. The opposite, though, they found for frontline managers and frontline employees, 85% of those folks said they were unsure or they disagreed that they could live their purpose in their day-to-day work. So we're seeing a, a real split in terms of who feels like their their work is defining them and who feels like it's just a job. You have written and thought and talked a lot about finding purpose in our lives, not just at work. How big a deal is it, Christine, if, you know, if we have a full-time job, 40 to 60 whatever hours on the week uh, uh, per week as a big part of our life, if we're not finding purpose there, is, is that bad for us? So purpose is really important to our well-being, but we don't necessarily have to define purpose in the um, in, in the way that everything we do has to be fun and uh, and using um, all of our skills all the time. Uh, when I define purpose, I define it as using your gifts in keeping with your values to make a positive impact on the world around you. And, you know, providing for your family in a job that pays the bills, that's purposeful work right there. And if you can use your skills and you can engage in what academics call some job crafting to use your skills better in the workforce, what we find is that people do tend to feel more engaged. And when they feel more engaged, they work harder. They are more likely to go above and beyond. And so many employers right now are talking about purpose and how to increase the purpose of their workforce. I keep thinking of a slogan. This, I think, was from the labor movement in the 19th century, looking for eight-hour workdays. Uh, the slogan was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what you will. And I don't know. The idea is, okay, I'm going to sell you this eight hours of my labor, and I'm writing that off. The good stuff happens elsewhere. Can, can we make that kind of clean separation anymore if we ever could? First of all, for parents and for people who work second jobs, that was never on the table. But sure. the idea of uh, the idea of of having a life outside of work is an idea that I think really was popular a couple decades ago. And then we we entered a period in uh, the seventies and the eighties and the nineties where 
what it meant to be a successful person was very much defined by work. That has some downsides, especially as people head toward retirement. There are many people who don't know who they are without their jobs. And so potentially having a little bit more separation and a little more of that always elusive work-life balance may be where we're headed. We're talking to Christine Whelan from the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison, looking at our engagement, our connection, our purpose during our work lives. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. In your current job, do you do you feel some of these things you're talking about? Like, uh, you know why you're there. You know what the mission is. It You feel like you're valued and providing value to uh, your workplace, your coworkers, the world at large. Or do you feel the opposite? Or have you had a job where you really didn't feel those things? Call in at 800 642 one two three four. That's eight hundred six four two one two three four. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. If I'm an employer, Christine, and I want to have an engaged workforce, what can I do? Are there things I could do to set the scene to make it more possible? Absolutely. So the first thing to do is to really approach it in a genuine way. Because if you're thinking about purpose as sort of the latest slogan, then that's not going to resonate. And in fact, it will alienate folks. But Instead, ask people about their personal purpose as well. And so I offer all sorts of these sort of Mad Libs purpose statements that people can do, uh, combining your values and your gifts and who you want to positively impact. Then you can link that to the company's mission and vision and purpose statement. But really what we find in the business world is that purpose has to be uh, something that is imbued into all aspects of the company. So for example, if a company says that their purpose is uh, environmental sustainability, but folks don't recycle even in the office, then that's just doing lip service and not actually embodying purpose. I could see myself being a very skeptical employee uh, with a with an employer who is saying, yeah, here's our purpose, here how, here's how we're matching things. How how do we make that, I guess, feel authentic and I guess be authentic to that skeptical Rob-like worker? <laughs> well, you know, for leaders, you you want to actually live purposefully yourself. So it's a practice what you preach from the top. But what we're seeing from this latest McKinsey data from just really a couple months ago is that even though executives are feeling purposeful, uh, the, the frontline employees aren't. And I think that's now in part because we have a, a different sense of where we should be physically uh, in regard to work and whether work is a place for socializing in, in, as, as a large part in addition to work or whether we're sort of doing our work remotely. One of the things that I've been really interested in is I would have predicted that remote work would have really actually decreased employee engagement, but we find it hasn't. So uh, so I think we're heading into this sort of brave new world where we're trying to figure out how to uh, manage a hybrid workforce and during this engagement blip. Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, work from home. The, the Gallup survey seemed to suggest that people who were, uh, you know, who had been through some of that hybrid workforce experience you'd mentioned, they were maybe some of the people who were feeling less engaged than they might have. That would make sense to me. And other studies, though, have found that that's, that's not true. So if uh, so, I think it's going to really depend on the sector and depend on the individual. But when we think about like the, the purpose that people want from their, their work out, their life outside of work, right, they're looking for uh, 
to do healthy things, to have life satisfaction. Uh, when you when you think about the work and the purpose in day-to-day -day work itself, then that's really about uh, pride in what you do, uh, about a, um, a, are you achieving? Are you connecting? Do you, are you excited about new possibilities? So this is something that employers can put into their workforce. They can make sure that people are rewarded for the good work that they're doing. And even if you are in a hybrid workforce, providing that connection and new opportunities and challenges. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Kathy is with us in Madison. Kathy, hi. Hi. What did you want to tell us about, Kathy? Well, I wanted to say that um, I was a, a, a public school teacher, and I taught music mostly at the elementary level. And I, I was in the classroom for 40 years, and one of the things I really loved about my job was that I never had to wonder if I was making a difference. I knew that I made a difference every day. And, uh, you know, I was not just making a profit for somebody. So um, that's my comment. And it was it was a great one of the many great things about teaching children. And Kathy, I, I know uh, being a teacher can be challenging. Uh, teaching teaching music uh, can be equally challenging. Did that that feeling that there was a purpose to it get you through maybe those tougher days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's I think it's most challenging at the beginning beginning if you're if you are not a natural at classroom control. You takes a while, takes a few years to really get your sea legs under you, but um it's a great job and I really like teaching music because it was fun, you know, and nobody um is going to like flunk music or, you know, flunk a grade <laughs> because they didn't pass music. So there's not the same kind of pressure on it as there is when you're teaching reading and math. Interesting. Kathy, thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, Christine, Kathy clearly found a, a job that, that matched her purpose, and she found it fun, too. Yeah, so teaching and uh, is, is one of those wonderful jobs, I am a teacher as well, that really, uh, that, that really makes you f understand that you are making an impact. I'm always interested in the folks who are able to find purpose and meaning in jobs that aren't so sort of emotionally connecting with with other folks. And that's where you know you realize what you are doing matters down the line. So when I'm working with a student, I can clearly see the impact that I'm having on a student. Uh, and, and but yet also when I get a letter from a student five years down the line saying uh, that that what I had taught them really impacted me, that's really something that gives me increased purpose as well. You know, the purpose Having a high sense of purpose makes you able to think that you can accomplish bigger and greater things than if you don't have a sense of purpose. There is a really interesting study that had students look at, at the, stand at the base of a mountain and they looked up at the mountain and they had to decide whether they could climb the mountain or not. And those with a higher sense of purpose believed that they were likely to be able to climb this mountain and people with a lower sense of purpose were more intimidated. And so whether it's a metaphorical mountain or a real mountain, having a sense of purpose helps us really through those tough times at work. Kathy, thanks a lot for that call. We're talking to Christine Whelan from the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology. Her books include The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life. We're looking at engagement in the workplace. A Gallup survey says under a third of Americans feel engaged with their work. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Tell us about a job, past or present, that you felt really engaged with or disengaged from. What did that look like? What did it feel like? 
Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation. Maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation with Christine Whelan from the UW-Madison School of Human Ecology, looking at our feelings of engagement and connection with our work after a Gallup poll showed that under a third of American workers say they feel engaged at work. You can join in with your story, your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Rhiannon joins us now in Watertown. Rhiannon, hi. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, What's your work story? So a handful of years ago, I was hired by Trek Bicycles, and I have been in the bicycle industry for over 25 years. I've never felt a true connection or overly engaged, just kind of of been part of the industry. However, Trek has done a fantastic job of integrating. um, One of the things that your speaker mentioned was the hybrid workforce um, with COVID, we had to go a lot of remote. And another interesting point that your speaker brought up was having that emotional connection to a job that you don't see the immediate value stream. And my job is an engineer and we don't generally see the immediate impact of our value stream. So it was really interesting when I got the job to be able to get that immediate engagement, immediate connection and Overall, it's the best tribal experience that I've had in a career, and it's just been absolutely amazing to be a part of that company. And you get that value stream when you get out on your bicycle, ride around, you talk to the people, and you just have that great connection with not only the consumer, but also your coworkers. We have so many great benefits and programs at the company. It's incredible. Rena, thank you so much for sharing that story from a Wisconsin-based company. Christine, what do you think? Oh, this is so wonderful to hear. You know, humans are social animals, right? So uh, we do derive meaning from uh, from interactions with other people and from actually physically doing things like riding that bicycle that you may have engineered. So that's super cool. The other findings that we're seeing is that you know when employees are more satisfied at work, uh, they're they're more satisfied when they feel like their jobs are meaningful. And so, for example, as an engineer, thinking about the end product is really important, even if you are not going to immediately see it. Uh, understanding that your work is incredibly purposeful and meaningful, and that people are relying on you—that's a big part of it. Rhiannon, thank you so much for sharing your story at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls. Jim is with us in Watertown. Jim, hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, this hits home because uh, during COVID, I you know decided I would sit it out. I'm a construction worker, pretty much always have been. Um, and I came to find out that I got completely miserable. Um I I do like being a construction worker very much. I like the fact that at the end of the project, I get to look back on what it is I've done and, you know, get that little jolt of pride for it and know that the next one's coming down the block. I'm also 59 years old and was really looking at possibly retiring. And I know that there is no way if it comes down to I can't do it for somebody else, I'll be doing it for myself. Uh, you know, I'm grandpa. That's my other, uh, you know, identity, but it's, you know, well, I, if you feel good about me at the end of the day, I got to be busy. 
And Jim, I got to ask you, if I asked you 10 years ago uh, who you are, what you do, would you say, yeah, I'm a construction worker? If I asked you right now, would you say I'm a construction worker? 10 years ago, I was floating. I didn't understand that giving a piece of myself to something gave me value back tenfold. From that point, though, I have looked at myself as a construction worker. Interesting. Jim, thanks so much for sharing that story. Christina, we've heard from uh, people in different lines of work. What do you think of Jim's story? Oh, first, I just love this so much because purpose at at its core, I believe, is pro-social, meaning that you are using your gifts for the benefit of others. And that's really what story is all about. So that's that's so wonderful. It also reminds me of my my favorite parable that I always tell when I'm trying to define purpose for people. And it's the parable of the traveler that comes across three men laying bricks. And he asks the first man, what are you doing? And the first man says, I'm putting one brick on top of the other. And the second man says he's building a wall. And the third man says he's building a cathedral. And the the moral of this parable is that, you know, it, it's not about just putting one brick on top of the other, but that, that's having a job, building the wall is having a career. But if you have that, that larger sense of what you're doing, that sense of purpose, you can see the really meaningful things that you are making. And so hearing Jim talk about that, I thought that is that that's such a beautiful way to put it. Thanks again for calling in, Jim, Jim, and sharing your story. Christine, suppose somebody's listening and saying, you know, I don't feel engaged at my workplace. Uh, and, you know, people don't always have the option, obviously, to leave jobs or change jobs at the spur of the moment. What kind of thoughts do you have for someone in that situation? So there's research around job crafting, where you actually begin to think about what it is that you could do at your job that would be more meaningful. How are you able to use your skills differently in your current role or potentially to craft a role that better uses your skills and abilities? So that's one option. The other option is to realize that you are doing purposeful work by supporting your family. And if at this moment you can't financially leave that job to know that it's not like you're wasting eight hours at the job that you're, that you're at, that you don't particularly enjoy, you're supporting others and then really find that meaning and purpose in some of the unpaid work and the unpaid things you do. You know, we've really been focused on paid work, but so much of our economy is also run by unpaid work and, and the care work that we do. And so that can be very purposeful or that can be seen as a burden on top of our paid work. So thinking about work really broadly speaking, not just the stuff that accrues money in a bank account, but work can be purposeful of all types. And in just our last minute, let's flip things around. Now I'm that person's boss. Uh, What's in it for me if I get in touch with them and find out, you know, how they can better use their skills, how they could get more engaged? When you have an engaged worker, you are much less likely to lose them. And retention is incredibly important to employers because finding a new employee is challenging and costly. And raises and promotions are much more common for employees who have meaningful work because their bosses see their engagement and want to keep them. So it is a win-win all around to have a meaningful, purposeful workplace. Christine, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. That's Christine Whelan from the School of Human Ecology at UW-Madison. She's the author of books including The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life, and Finding Your Purpose and Audible Original Great Courses program. 
She joined us for a look at our feelings of engagement at work or lack of same. You can keep sharing your stories, your experiences over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Coming up after the news, Florida's governor won't allow a pilot AP course on African-American studies to be taught in public schools in that state. And that wants to ban critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion programs at state colleges. We'll look at the, ro- we'll look at the role of issues of race in education. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network.